Okay, now, we have been in our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Today is actually day eight. Uh, And I just love, even though today is so different than what we expected, I love that we have the ability to still be connected with each other in this way. And I can see a lot of you chose to do church in your pajamas today. Uh, That's fantastic that technology allows us to do that. Now, last message, last week, I mentioned that when I first started dating my wife, Summer, we were only juniors in high school. In fact, we were just 16 years old. I've got a picture here that they're going to show you right now. This is from our first date, junior prom, 16 years old, when we were in high school. Now, every single day, they're going to take that picture away so it doesn't distract you. Every single day, After school, we would call each other and we would talk to each other on the telephone. Now, remember, I explained to some of you last week, the telephone was something that used to be in our house, not in our pocket. So we would call each other on the telephone. Even though we'd spent the whole day with each other, we still wanted to talk. Now, what's the reason for that? Was it because we love to talk on the telephone? Actually, no. We still both, to this day, uh, don't like the telephone at all, but we still called each other and talked at the end of the day. We also, during the day, we wrote notes during the school day. Now, let me explain. Notes, we used to take a piece of paper, and with a pencil, we would write on that paper. We used to write to each other. We used to talk on the phone. Why did we do this? It's because I wanted to get to know Summer is to the best of my ability. I wanted to know everything about her. I thought she was the best, and so because of that, I wanted to know what she liked and what she didn't like. I want to know what she was passionate about and what, she, what, what, what bothered her. I wanted to get to know every part of her, and so I spent as much time communicating with her as I could because I wanted to know what she was really like. And so that leads me to a really important question and thought for today. What is God really like? I mean, what is God really like? I think this is an incredibly important question for us all to ponder together today. Not what do other people say God is like, or not what do I think God is like, but what is God really like? And I ask this question because I've got an important life point right here at the very start of the message today. And again, if you're watching online, the message notes are available for you. You can pull those up. You can also use the Bible there on the side. But this important point, I think, really sets the stage for us today. And the life point is this. Your understanding of what God is like will shape everything else in your life, including your prayer. You see, your understanding of what God is really like is going to shape everything else in your life, including your prayer life. You see, nothing, nothing influences your life more than how you view and what you believe is true about God, and that will influence your prayer life. Now, a lot of people have misconceptions about God. Some people think God is angry and upset all the time and that you can never make him happy. While other people believe that God is kind of like Santa Claus. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's always trying to find out if I've been good, and if I've been good, he'll answer my prayers. And if I've been bad, he's going to punish me. Some people think of God like he's a dictator or a tyrant. He's always demanding more and more and more, and it's never enough. 
And it's extremely important that you and I get to know the real God. What is He really like? If you have a misconception about what God is really like, that's going to affect the way that you and I approach God together in prayer. If you think that God is hard to please, if you think that he's a taskmaster, if you think God is like your earthly father and you could never make him happy, then prayer is always going to be difficult for you. See, we all need to see God for who he really is. I've got a quote for you today from one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer. He said this, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it affects everything else in your life. I believe this is true. I believe what comes to your mind when you think about God is incredibly important for each and every person because it's going to affect everything else. So the question I asked you in the beginning, what is God really like? Now, obviously in one sermon, I cannot tell you and cover all of the attributes of what God is really like. Somebody I heard say amen, okay? I obviously can't do that. So what I want to do today is focus on just one attribute. Because see, God has so many wonderful attributes. And the more you study them and the more you understand them, I believe the more and more deeply you will fall in love with him. For example, we know he's all-knowing or uh, omniscient. We know he's all-powerful or omnipotent. We know he's omnipresent, which means he can be everywhere at the same time and he's not limited by time or space. We know he's holy and just and kind and loving and faithful and merciful and so many others. But today, I want to focus on just one attribute that I think is especially paramount to our prayer life. And that is, I want to focus on the goodness of God. See, because if you don't believe that God is good, you are always going to struggle with prayer. I just love Psalm 100, verse 5. It says this, For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. See, when you understand how good God really is, It's going to change how we approach God in prayer. And it changes our motivation for doing so. I don't want prayer to be just the duty in my life. I don't want prayer to just be an obligation. Because prayer, God designed prayer as a delight, as an opportunity for us to have a relationship with God. So, let's look at a few implications today. I've got three points I want to make in today's message about how understanding God's goodness is going to affect our prayer life. And here's number one. Here's the first point. Number one, God's plans for my life will always be good. Now, I want to take a look at some scripture that I quote an awful lot, and so does my dad. It's one of my life verses, and I think is so important for us to understand. And that's Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. And maybe your response to this is, well, how do I know what God's plan for my life really is? 
Well, friends, God's plan for your life are revealed one step at a time. God's plans are revealed one step at a time. And God's plans are actually realized in our life as we walk them out in prayer. As we pray and as we take our next step, God leads us to our next step. And the more time we spend with God, the better that we get to know Him. The more time we spend with God, the more we spend time with the Lord in prayer, the more we will understand His plan for our life. In prayer is the place where God leads us to our next step. He tells us, I've got a good plan for you. And if God has a good plan for you, doesn't that uh, lead us to say, well, I want to know what that plan is. If God's plans are good and they're to give me a good future and a good life and they're not to harm me, then I want to know what God's plans are. And his plans are discovered. His plans are revealed. His plans are realized as we spend time with the Lord in his word and in prayer. That's the reason we are doing 21 days of prayer. I want you to know this wonderful father of ours better. I want you to be able to step into God's dream for your life. Because friends, God's purpose and plans for your life don't just happen automatically. The Bible says that God leads us into these things and that we have not because we ask not. And so we have to learn how to ask. We have to learn how to pray. And you say, well, Kurt, not everything in my life is very good. Well, God never promised you that everything in your life would be good. God never said that everything that happens in our life is good. In fact, Jesus went to the other extreme. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. So he never promised that everything in our life would be good. Friends, you have to understand, we live on a broken planet. And everything on this planet is broken. Nothing works perfectly. Nothing at all. Your body doesn't work perfectly. Anyone amen? Right? Your mind doesn't work perfectly. Government doesn't work. I'll just end that there. Our life doesn't work the way that we think it should work. The economy is broken. Our relationships are broken. Nothing is perfect. Because God never said your life will be perfect. In heaven, your life will be perfect. In heaven, there'll be no more sorrow, sickness, shame, suffering. But here on this earth, we do experience these things. We do experience brokenness. But God says this wonderful promise to us. In the middle of, in the midst of all of your hurt, in the midst of your brokenness, I have a good plan for your life. God says, even when you make bad choices, I'm greater than your choices, and I can even take your dumb, sinful decisions and turn them into good for your life. What a wonderful God. He can turn death into life. He can take crucifixions and turn them into resurrections. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Does that say that all things are good? No. It says that in all things, God works for the good. It doesn't say everything is good. It says that in all things, God works for the good. And it goes on. Of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. 
friends, this is not a promise for everybody in the world. Everything is not working together for the good for everyone in the world. Everything is working together for the good for those who belong to God, who have given their life to Jesus. It says God will work his purpose and his plan in your life regardless of your situation or your circumstance. He will bring about good. And an example of this, we'll look back to to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, to the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph is the one whose older brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of his relationship with his uh, parents. And he ends up, after um, being sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt and in Potiphar's house, and he's falsely accused, he's imprisoned, his life is really out of control. You think, man, this is difficulty upon difficulty. He ends up locked up in prison for years, but God never leaves him. He helps him all along the way. And in the end, he ends up making Joseph second in charge of all of Egypt. And he uses Joseph to save millions of people's lives from famine. And part of the people that he saves includes his own brothers who sold him into slavery. Well, one day when his brothers come asking for help, discover that their brother whom they thought was dead is still alive, This is what Joseph says, Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, this is uniquely something that God can do for us. You intended it for evil. This was something, your motive was evil. Your motive was bad. It was a sinful decision that you made to harm me, but God. God was able to take your sin, your, um, your corruption, your plans and your motives, and he was able to turn them for good to accomplish his purpose and his will in our life. So friends, the more and more that we trust in the goodness of God, it's going to transform how you see the rest of the world. It's going to transform how happy you are and how much joy you experience. Romans 5.3 says, this is crazy, it says we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Now, how is that possible? How can we rejoice when we're in trouble? How can we rejoice when we run into problems? The only way this is possible is what Paul's going to tell us next. He says, for we know. For we know. See, it's about what we know. It's about who we know. In the middle of trouble, in the middle of trials, we as God's people can rejoice. Why? Because what we know, because who we know. You see, happiness in this life depends on who and what you know, not what you're going through and what you feel. You can take two people who are going through identical life circumstances, and they will respond in entirely different ways. Why? Because our happiness is not determined by our circumstances. Our happiness is determined by who and what we know. He he says it like this. So we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us, and they help us to learn patient endurance. 
The only way that you can rejoice in the midst of problems is because we know how good God really is. When we understand that His plans are good, that we understand that even in the midst of difficulty, He's working all things for the good, it changes our perspective. And that should, friends, change the way we pray. In the midst of this, we can always approach God in His goodness. We can always understand in the midst of trials and difficulty that God is still good. If you watched my devotion this morning, what I encourage you to do today as homework is throughout your day, at the different points of your day, that you're feeling stressed or anxious or you're feeling cooped up or housebound, is that you would take some time and actually remember all of the reasons that you have today to be thankful for what God has done. Okay, let's look at number two. Number two says this, God always gives me what I need, not what I deserve. (coughs) God always gives me what I need, not what I deserve. If you and I got what we deserved, none of us would be here. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12 says this, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Why? How? How can this be possible? Because, see, friends, Jesus Christ paid the price for all of your sins and all of your wrongs. If you were responsible to pay the price for your sin and for your wrong, then my question is, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? If you were able to pay for your own sin and your own wrong, then why did Jesus have to die? You see, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then all of your sins, friends, have been paid for. So, Why then do we still expect that God is holding them against us, that we somehow have to measure up or or earn something or pay God back? He's already paid for them, and He doesn't treat us as we deserve. He doesn't pay us back for our wrongs. In His goodness, He has taken our sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west. Now, I have a globe here because I think this is an important thing for you and I to understand. Why does the Bible say that he's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west and not as far as the north is from the south? Well, here we are in Silverton, Oregon, and if I head north, eventually I reach the North Pole. And if I keep going, what happens? I start moving south. (coughs) And then eventually, I go north, I go south. (coughs) But... If I go east or I go west, how far can you travel east? If you leave Silverton on a plane that never ran out of fuel and you started traveling west, how far could you travel west? Well, it never ends. See, the east and the west never meet. You can always move westward and you can always move to the east. So he's separated, this is good news for us, friends, he's separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. It means it's infinitely separated from us. 
Let me make this clear to you, friends. God has forgiven you. And it's not because you are good. It's because He is good. See, He has a plan. And it's a good plan. And when we blow it, and when we need forgiveness, He forgives us. Why? Because He's a good God. And because God is always good, and because God is always gracious, when we pray, we can be bold and confident. We don't have to come slinking in before God with our tail between our legs. We can come and say, God, you're a good father, and I come to you, and I have access to you because this is who you told us you are. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, talking about Jesus. This high priest of ours understands our weakness. You need to stop there and understand God knows our weaknesses better than we know our weaknesses. He knows the weaknesses that you have that you don't even know are weaknesses. He knows you better than you know yourself. It says Jesus understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly with confidence. Let us come boldly with confidence to the throne of grace. Let us come boldly with confidence. Friends, do you hear what I'm saying today? We can come before the Lord with boldness and with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. And it goes on, it says, we'll receive mercy. We'll find grace to help us when we need it most. How many of you need grace today? How many of you need to experience His mercy today? Well, the invitation to you is come. Because of the goodness of God, you are invited to come to the throne of God. Jesus made all of this per, uh, uh, available to you. He, he paved the way for you so that we can come before the Lord. Now, I've got one more point, and you need to stick with me because when I first say it, you may think that I'm a heretic, but you need to understand what I mean when I say it. And here's number three. Number three is God puts my good above his own good. God puts my good above his own good. Friends, to understand this is to understand the heart of the gospel. This is the good news. The king is willing to sacrifice his life for the peasants. It's one of the many reasons that we know the Bible is true. You see, in fairy tales, made-up stories, everyone else dies for the king. Protect the king at all costs. Protect the queen at all costs. And all the villagers and all the peasants and all the slaves and all the soldiers, everyone else dies to protect the king. And that's not just a fairy tale. That's what most of history would tell you as well. But that's not the gospel. In the gospel... The perfect, mighty, invincible king voluntarily lays down his own life for a bunch of wicked and sinful people. People who were his enemies that he willingly gives up his life for them. This is what makes our faith different from every other storyline out there in the world. God says, yes, you've sinned, and yes, you deserve punishment, but... I'm going to take that punishment that you deserve onto myself and pay the price myself for your sin. I'll come down from my throne in heaven. 
I'll show you what it's like to live a perfect life. I'll demonstrate what my plan for your life really looks like. I'll usher in my kingdom and I will lay down my own life for you. See, this is the ultimate expression of love. That the shepherd is willing to die for his sheep. Look at this next verse in John 10, 14 and 15. It says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Friends, I don't think maybe you understand how unbelievable that statement really is. How wonderful, how scandalous that statement really is. Listen, if, if you, we were in a culture with shepherds and sheep and there was a lot more agriculture and shepherds and sheep around us, maybe we would get it a little bit more. But do you know how ridiculous it is as a statement that the shepherd is willing to exchange his life to lay down his life for one of his sheep, for a livestock animal? Uh, if you asked me, if I had sheep and you said, it's either you or the sheep, which one? I would definitely give you my sheep. I would not be laying my life down for a sheep. But friends, understand this. The creator of the universe is so good that he, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his creation, for his sheep. John fifteen thirteen says this, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So when we look at the cross together, if you're wearing one around your neck right now, or you have one there in your house that you see on the wall, or when you drive by a cemetery, or when you look at a hospital and you see a cross, it is truly a symbol of God's goodness. It is a symbol of God's kindness. It is a symbol of God's radical love that he would be willing to lay down his life, the perfect one, for a bunch of imperfect people. That's mind-blowing to understand that Jesus died to pay the price for our sin. And if we stopped right there, it would be good enough. It would be amazing. What a wonderful truth. But that's not the fullness of the gospel. Not only does Jesus lay his life down for us, he also gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness. He exchanges our filthy rags for his robes of righteousness. We get to put on his goodness and he takes out our badness. This is the great exchange. Look at this next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. When God looks at you and I, He doesn't see our sin. Remember, He separated them as far as the east is from the west. <clears throat> when God views your life, He doesn't view your sin. He sees instead the goodness of His Son, Jesus. <coughs> and friends... This is the very best news in the world. This is why 
we as a church at Silver Creek Fellowship say we have to keep growing as a church. No matter how many people end up coming, it's not enough because as long as there is one person in this city who's yet to make this exchange, to have their badness taken and the goodness of God placed on their life, to experience the forgiveness that Jesus Christ bought for them on the cross, then we have to keep going. We have to keep proclaiming. We have to keep growing because this news is too good friends, to keep to ourself. Now, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, friends, it has everything to do with prayer. Because if you don't understand what I just got done saying, you truly will never understand prayer, and you will always struggle with prayer. Because, see, what makes prayer possible is understanding what was accomplished for you on the cross. Look with me at Romans 8.32. It says this, <clears throat> Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Did you hear what Paul said? Did you hear, understand the, the logic that he's using here? If God was willing to send his perfect son into this earth, and he was willing to allow him to be sacrificed on a cross to torture and die for our sin... So that how much more, friends, won't he give us everything else? If he was willing to go to that extreme, won't he also take care of your needs? Do you think God would send his son Jesus to die for you, but he doesn't care about your electric bill? Do you think God would send his son to die for you, but he doesn't care about your relationship problems? Do you think God would send his son Jesus to die for you, but he doesn't care about your health or your family? No, if God was willing to sacrifice his own son, won't he also give us everything else? And how you answer that question is going to radically affect your prayer life. Why am I saying all this? Because until you are absolutely convinced that God is good, that his plans for your life are good, that he wants good for you, that He's provided good for you, you will always struggle in prayer. On the other hand, when you realize this, no matter what circumstances you are facing, no matter what difficulty you are facing, when you truly can come to the place where you know, not just in the, the that I know, yeah, that's true. No, no, where you know it, where it's become part of who you are, that you know that God is good, that he's not against me, but that he's for me, that he is working in my life. Even when I can't see it, he's moving. When you get to that place, it's going to radically change the way you pray. Now, friends, I've talked long enough today. But what I would hate to have happen this morning is while you're there at home, while you're watching this from the comfort of your living room with your family, I would hate for you to just shut this off and now move about your day. Because I think that there's still a response for us all today. There's still a way for us to really be engaged today as part of this 21 days of prayer and fasting where we actually tangibly experience the goodness of God. And one of the things that I know helps with that so much is for us to worship. Now, because uh, there's me here today in the building and my mom and my sister and my dad, uh, we are not going to be leading you in worship. I heard another amen, but we're not going to be leading you in worship today. 
But that doesn't mean that you can't worship now. Whether that's going to YouTube and finding a few songs and listening to those and singing those, I would suggest Good, Good Father. Good, Good Father goes perfectly with today's message. In fact, that's what we were going to be singing next. And I would encourage you, a song like that would be great. Maybe go to Spotify and listen. Maybe you have a guitar at home. It's time to dust it off and break it out. Maybe you've got your keyboard. It's time to sing and to worship. There's lots of other ways, too, that you can worship. Maybe today, with your family, with your kids. Maybe you would um, make an art project. Maybe you would draw or color something that represents God's goodness and talk about it together as a family. As 21 days of prayer, this would be a good time for you to pray. And we've given you lots of tools to help you as part of this 21 days of prayer. This would be a great time to break out that prayer guide and to find one of those different models of prayer and spend some time actually in prayer or break out the kids' prayer guide and together as a family spend some time praying and worshiping with your kids. You know, another way you can serve is through acts of service. Maybe your neighbor needs his driveway to be cleared of ice and snow. Maybe as an act of worship today as a family, you could go check on that elderly neighbor that's likely stuck in their house. Maybe you, together as a family today, could pray about how, oh God, could you use our family to serve today in an act of worship. Always you can read Scripture together and spend some time in the Word. And I just want to encourage you, find a way today to stay engaged, to, to, to worship, to experience God's goodness, because I'm fully convinced, friends, that when you experience for yourself God's goodness, it just makes you hungry for more. And the more of it that you get, the bigger your appetite becomes for more. And the more you will desire to experience and to taste and see God's goodness every single day in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful today that you are with us right now, scattered all over Silverton and really the country, that you are present amongst us, that your goodness isn't just something we've read about in a book, but it's something we've experienced for ourselves, that you, God, are still moving in our life and working in our life, that we can experience your goodness in the land of the living on a daily basis. Thank you that no matter what we are facing today, sickness, difficulty, relationship issues, that you are with us and you have a good plan even in the midst of our difficulty. And I just pray, God, as we end this time together today, that we would be a people who are fully convinced of your goodness. That we are fully convinced of your desire to do good in our lives, and that that would lead us, God, deeper and deeper into devotion and into prayer. I thank you, God, that even though we didn't know that this is how the service would go today, <clears throat> you knew before you laid the foundation of the universe, and you prepared good works in advance for us to walk in. So I thank you for this time spent together today. And I just pray your blessing on each and every one who's watching and listening right now. In Jesus' name, amen.